last, um, last couple of weeks, the last two weeks, uh, I've shared with you several reasons why you can and should trust the Bible as the written Word of God. Uh, reasons like you know, the Bible's testimony about itself, it, it's amazing, a prophetic track record, uh, it's remarkable historical accuracy, and, and, and much, much more. And now, as for me, as a follower of Jesus, and, and quite frankly, for anyone who acknowledges the remarkable wisdom and moral clarity of Jesus, one of the most significant reasons to trust the Bible has to be, one of the most compelling reasons to trust in the Scriptures has to be Jesus' own attitude, his own esteem for the Bible. Uh, and before I move on to my next uh, topic of consideration in this teaching series, this well-read teaching series, I want to back up to that for just a moment, very briefly, this morning. Last week I noted that Jesus uh, highly esteemed Scripture, that he referred to it often, appealed to it often as authoritative, that there are at least 35 direct references to Old Testament Scripture by Jesus uh, in the four Gospels. And, uh, and so before I move on this morning, I just want to give you a, a glimpse, just a couple of Jesus' own words about the subject of the Scripture. Uh, first, in, in Matthew 5, 17 and, and 18, uh, there we go. Uh, uh, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. In Matthew 22, Jesus rebuked the Sadducees for not knowing the Bible as they should, saying, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. In Matthew 15, 6, he rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for esteeming their traditions above the Bible. He said, you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. In John 10, 35, Jesus makes the statement, Scripture cannot be broken. The bottom line then is this, that Jesus treated the Scriptures as eternally authoritative. He referred to them as the Word of God, and he rebuked people for not knowing them and not honoring them in their lives. And if that's how Jesus treated the Bible, that's how I want to treat it myself. King David wrote in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So having said all of that, these last couple of weeks, having said all of that about the Scripture itself, we now have to take some time to turn our attention to the human element, to the reading and sometimes the misreading of these holy words. 
In your seats today, there's another uh, scripture memory card. Uh, two weeks ago, we gave you a scripture memory card. Encourage you to begin memorizing 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17. I hope you took the opportunity to do that. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. On the one hand, then, we know for sure that scripture is always right. Scripture itself is right. It's breathed out and breathed into by God himself. It's pure and trustworthy and righteous and radiant, according to Psalm 19. But on the other hand, Scripture's read and it's taught and it's employed by men. And that brings us to the Scripture memory card in your seats this morning, which I urge you to take some time and try and work on this week. But right now, would you stand with me, please, as you're able, in honor of the Word of God, and let's just read it together. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. This is our memory work for beginning this week. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Together we read, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Now, the first three words in this particular translation are do your best. It's a translation of a Greek word that means to be diligent, to act eagerly or zealously. And the point here is that it takes intentional effort to be the person God wants you to be, to live the life God wants you to live. You need to do your best. You need to give it your all. Do your best Paul says, to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then I want you to notice what comes next. He says, who correctly handles the word of truth. And here's the point I want to get to, the point I want to move us to this morning. If you need to do your best to handle the word of truth correctly, That means it is entirely possible to handle it incorrectly. In other words, while the word of truth, the word of God, is always truth from God, sometimes the way people read it, sometimes the way they understand it or they teach it or they try to apply it, isn't true or right at all. So you need to do your best not to make that crucial mistake. You need to do your best to present yourself to God as one who correctly handles his word of truth. Referring to the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. But what if one uses it improperly? Well, then the word, the law, is still good, but the way it's being used is not. The way it's being read, the way it's being taught, the way it's being implied, uh, applied may actually, in fact, be bad. And as a result, it's entirely possible to take the word of truth and conclude things that are not true. And so for the rest of this well-read series over the next several weeks, I want to take some time 
and deal with that very sobering reality. And when it comes to the issue, the subject of mishandling the Scripture, the first thing you need to understand is this is not a new problem. In Jesus' own day, some of his fiercest opponents were some of the people most thoroughly zealous for the Bible as they understood it. In John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus rebuked them, saying, You diligently study the Scriptures, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Fascinatingly, in spite of diligent study, they kept getting it wrong. Somehow they managed to read and read and read the Bible and get farther and farther and farther from God. Paul wrote about them to the Christians in Rome. For I can testify about them, he said, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. Their mishandling of the Scriptures caused them to miss God entirely when He came to them. Actually moved them to have Him crucified. When God became man in flesh, God the Word became incarnate as a man, they accused God the Word of blasphemy. They accused God the Word of misrepresenting God's Word. Look at me. You can't get more wrong than that. And they got that wrong based on their mishandling of the Bible. And if that doesn't get your attention, you're not paying enough attention. The Apostle Peter wrote, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction." The first thing I want you to notice from Peter's writing here is that he refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. Within the very early days of the Christian church, there was widespread general consensus that the writing of the apostles was Scripture, authoritative Scripture to be treated as authoritative as any other Scripture. And the second thing I want you to notice here is that even in the earliest days of the Christian church, people were misreading mishandling, and misinterpreting Scripture. Now, i got to tell you, that is most certainly the case when people today, in wide-scale fashion, try to contend that the Bible is filled with contradiction and errors. There's an entire cottage industry today of people uh, trying to discredit the Bible by pointing to what they, they call contradictions and errors in the Scripture. And especially for young believers, 
but, but not necessarily only young believers, their first exposure to some of these accusations against Scripture can be very disconcerting, very troublesome. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the vast majority of those claims are due to misreadings, are due to mishandling of the text. Frequently, they are the result of reading Scripture and taking it out of context. For example, critics often like to claim the Bible is full of scientific or factual error. According to Matthew chapter 13, for example, Jesus tells a parable, and in the parable he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now, according to the Bible, in this parable, Jesus refers to mustard seeds as the smallest of all seeds. And modern critics are happy, uh, eager to point out that that's simply not true. There are, in fact, seeds smaller than mustard seeds. They point to that triumphantly as proof of scientific error in the Bible. The truth, however, is that their comments reveal more about their own ignorance of rhetoric than about any possible scientific ignorance on the part of Jesus. And context here is the key. On this occasion, as you might have already surmised, Jesus was not giving an academic lecture to the local botanical society. Rather, he was making a point about God's kingdom to a group of local farmers. In other words, Jesus was speaking proverbially, not scientifically. And he was using an example that would be familiar to his audience. On a stormy day to say, it's raining cats and dogs outside, is to say something absolutely true proverbially speaking. And no one in their right mind would accuse you of making a scientific error to say it's raining cats and dogs, nor would they imagine you actually think cats and dogs fall from the sky. By the same token, every single day, professional meteorologists go on television with the news to tell you when the sun's going to rise and when the sun's going to set. But the scientific truth of the matter is the sun does not rise or set. Instead, in fact, the sun does, in relation to the earth, the sun doesn't move at all. Rather, the earth rotates on its axis, creating the impression that the sun rises, moves, and sets at some point. But to speak of the sun rising or setting or otherwise moving across the sky is a common form of everyday speech that accurately portrays our experience what we see going on around us. And no one in their right minds would ever accuse those professional meteorologists of being scientifically inaccurate because they used common, ordinary language to make their point. In Leviticus chapter 11, the Old Testament lays out a list of foods that at that time God forbade the children of Israel to consume. That list was broken into various categories. In verse 13, we move into a new category. 
Leviticus 11.13. These are the birds you are to detest and not eat because they are detestable, it begins. And from that point, it moves on for the next seven verses to list different items in this category, starting here with the eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture. It concludes in verse 19 with the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. Once again, critics have been eager to point out that bats are not birds, but rather a type of flying mammal. And they're right. Except, once again, their point misses the mark entirely. First of all, modern taxonomic classifications did not exist at the time of the writing of Leviticus. And so, as a result, the Hebrew word translated here as birds simply means flying things or winged creatures, which in fact bats are. The bottom line is, in the vast majority of cases, charges of error in the Scriptures are actually just cases of misreading, of reading without regard to context, without regard to the accepted rules of rhetoric, style, or figures of speech, perhaps without regard to a sufficient background in the original language or the original culture. In addition to levying charges of scientific and factual error, the Bible critics like to accuse the Bible being filled with contradictions. Once again, however, in the vast majority of these cases, it only takes just a few minutes of thought to recognize how the accounts in question purported to be contradictory can in fact be harmonized. One classic example involves the two accounts in the Bible of the death of Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. According to Matthew 27.5, in Matthew 27.5, the Bible simply says that Judas went away and hanged himself. But in Luke's account, in Acts chapter 118, he says he fell headlong in a field where his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Now, at first glance, this might appear to be a clear contradiction. Unless you consider the very rational possibility that each writer simply provided part of the story. Matthew focusing on the method leading to Judas's death, while Luke preferred to focus on the gruesome outcome. It is important to understand that incomplete reports are not therefore inaccurate or false reports. And when interpreting written material, it's also worth understanding that very often two incomplete reports, rather than being contradictory, may in fact be complementary. In other words, reading them together gives you a fuller picture of what went on. It's not hard at all to imagine that, one, Judas went out and hanged himself. Two, having hanged himself, at some point he fell down. Whether the branch broke or the rope broke or someone cut it loose. Number three, the impact of that fall was substantial enough to cause his body to burst open his intestines to spill out. I'm told, though I've not been myself, that in the Holy Lands, the traditional site for Judas's death is in a field at the bottom of a cliff just outside Jerusalem. Unfortunately, far too often, 
when Christians come across hard things in the Bible, things they've never seen before, too often they make the mistake of assuming no one's ever seen them before. Too often when someone asks them a question that they don't have an answer to, they make the false conclusion that there is therefore no answer to it. But as Tim Keller once suggested, for every puzzling thing you find in the Bible, there are at least a hundred doctoral theses devoted to addressing it. Having said that, as I close this morning, let me be perfectly clear about this. I do not imagine for an instant that I have all the answers to every difficult question levied at or about or against the Bible. The truth is, I've got some questions myself. There are issues I've not yet resolved. The truth is, there are challenging passages in the Bible that can raise very honest questions. And any serious student of Scripture will from time to time find himself having to wrestle mightily with a text, and sometimes, very likely, not settling right away on an answer that's satisfactory. But that's part of the beauty and the power of biblical Christianity, because it's not some fake, contrived, easy religion. It's real, based on real people and real events that real people like you and I can investigate and question. It's not about blind faith, and you don't have to check your brain at the door. Theologian Clark Pinnock once noted, the heart cannot delight in what the mind rejects as false. And so, biblical Christianity happily invites investigation, inspection, and honest questions. And based on my own personal close inspection, I have concluded that the overwhelming preponderance of the evidence is categorically convincing that the Bible can and should be trusted as the written Word of God, that solid answers do exist even if I don't always have them. The Bible can be trusted thoroughly as God's written word and a good gift from Him as a source of light and truth. And so, I am thoroughly, intellectually satisfied that the Bible is thoroughly trustworthy. Now, this morning, we started looking at the mishandling of Scripture, and I looked primarily at how critics of Scripture have mishandled it. The next time I share with you, we will begin to look at how Christians mishandle Scripture and some of the serious, unfortunate consequences of that as well. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you, as always, for the power and the clarity of your Word. Lord, for, for the many ways it has proven itself over and over again to be trustworthy and reliable. 
for the ways you use it in our lives to guide and direct us, to correct us and, and, and redirect us. We thank you, O Lord. We pray that you would make us, O Lord, help us do our best to present ourselves to you as those approved, who do not need to be ashamed and who correctly handle your word of truth. Make us that people, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah.